Shut up. Jim, you were, Jim, you were saying. <laughs> Shut up already. Damn. <laughs> Before Rick's Camille imitation rudely interrupted you. Yeah, I don't know. Would he like menus on pedals? Would Jimmy have pedals, menu pedals? Never. Totally. <laughs> he would have gone yeah. through the whole thing. He would have gone yeah. all the way through all the crap in the 70s and 80s and 90s. He would have had a Parker fly, just like Adrian Blue had. And then he would be back to his tube amp. He would be back to his original setup. He'd be right. playing his old Stratocaster and Marshall amp and talking about how he just had to get back to the tubes. Yeah, cocaine is a hell of a drug. You can get through all those menus when you're on coke. You can be like, what's this menu do? What's this setting do? What's this fly out? And actually, I've, I mean, I've read a, a lot of interviews with these old school guys who they were doing the tube stuff for a while, but now they're all back. They're doing what I'm doing. They're, they've got all the virtual amp sims and everything like that. There's a guy who plays with King Crimson now. And so Robert Fripp, you know, has just piles of stuff, amps and digital effects and analog effects and Mellotron. Mm -hmm. And then this guy has just got a line six set up because he just he's given up. Have you seen the whammy virtual whammy? It's an Australian guy made it. It sounded like he had one out a while ago, but this is a two, an updated, a better version, and it's it sounds like it's for sale for a limited time. I don't know if it's just they're only making a few, so many, or it's like five hundred dollars, and maybe they're it's gonna the price is gonna go up or something. But it just I just saw it yesterday. Is it, it digital whammy or something, or yeah. it's just it mm. just it's a digital processor, and it's mm. a you just stick it onto your guitar. You know, yeah. it's like you know removable sticky stuff, so you don't ruin your guitar. And it just it's just a whammy bar that is. Oh, you don't mean a signal. whammy pedal. You mean like a right? It's it's, like, it's a whammy bar, but it's like a whammy pedal. But you've got this bar ah, on your guitar, and you you can I get it. Put on any guitar, you can just have different mounts, or you can it's just like take a it off and mount it. Controller for right. the whammy effect. Yeah, yeah. And then it's a box. And it communicates with the box and does all the pitch shifting digitally. It digitizes your signal. And then, yeah. and you can do, it's also a virtual capo. So you can do any kind of capo right. stuff and in combination with the, the whammy bar. And then you can hold with a button. You can whammy, you know, have a hold thing and then play over that. You know, all these crazy, it looks really amazing. So they're like those Fender Acoustasonics, right? Where they yeah. are guitars, but then they also emulate the different amp sounds, but then, yeah, there's like the, yeah, I think there are Yamaha or Line 6 guitars that, yeah, you can just change the tuning uh -huh. um, on the guitar, even though what you're playing is still where it's, I, mm. yeah, that's where and I draw the line. He, he was actually de demonstrating it on one of those, because this, you can do it on just a regular, it works on an acoustic guitar, basically, mm -hmm. you know, crazy. it doesn't matter, which is really crazy. I went back and forth from like having a million stomp boxes to having <laughs> yeah. like an all-in-one unit. And then back to the stomp boxes, and then we got the Fractal FX8s, which is what everybody says is the best. And we tried them, and they sucked. They just sounded like digital garbage, so we threw those yeah. out. <laughs> and so now we're back to stomp boxes, except we don't... Now we rarely use pedals. So it's like we have 50 pedals in front of us, and we've got two of them on. Throughout the course of a show, we might use all of them eventually, but just not all at once. I don't know. I definitely like the Line Six stuff. I was I was not happy with any really? of the amp sims and uh, pedal sims, but the Line Six stuff is really good. Line Six used to be like metal, right? And now they've kind of I've heard that a lot. People say that Line Six isn't what it used to be. It's now for everybody, not just mm -hmm. people who love the sound of a PV. 
<laughs> right, right. There is a guy. I, I have to. I have to connect with him. He was in Conan Neutron's band. He's the like one of their sound designers now. So like mm. a indie rock, you know, post rock guy. One of his amps from what was the band Replicator, and then he was in another band called Cartographer. And some of the Line Six amps are his amps from his <laughs> post rock band. Wow. Yeah. There's a guy in Lawrence, Kansas. He built a preamp here for the studio. Robbie. He he tours with he toured with the band Fun or the whatever the Fun became, and then he's now touring with some even bigger band. He's their here's their engineer, and he says everything got so much easier once everybody went to fractals, and that's why I tried the fractals, but they they're terrible. They can't do it. There's a crazy video of like the edges set up where there's just like kind of like a hallway under the stage with all sorts of tube amps. Have you seen that video? No, no I've it's seen really his insane. racks of actual pedals. And right. then he has a controller. He has like a really clean black and big yeah. knobbed controller. And then there's some guy that does all the switching. Yeah. So it's it's an interview with that guy, but there's there's definitely like under the stage, there's just like a couple of like old, what Fender, what are those old, you know, Fender single speakers? Twins? Not twins, oh. like that earlier. like Champs? Oh, yeah, I think so. They're like the, you know, and different ones. And then, yeah, so he's still going through amps. Like he's doing some, you know, virtual effects and stuff, but he has basically like 20 amps that are used, you know, like you would do in a studio. Right. right. You know how you'd have yeah. the 20 amps set up and you'd be trying out different sounds with each of them. They'd all be mic'd up. He has that on tour. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. I saw the the ACDC video of one of those videos with his setup. Uh, It was like nine marshals, but tons more. They have tons of them on tour because they break. You know, they they run them at at the edge of breaking so to get them to sound great. And it's a pretty cool video, but it's just ridiculous. And then there's, yeah, there's ones under the stage. There's two, I think, that are mic'd, but it's to run. The back line is real so that it's he can run around on the stage with the, all the marshals behind and it just sounds the same. It's not for show. It's like right. they're all running, but there's the really good marshal that he uses for the sound or there's one down under the stage or the cabinet is under the stage or something is mic'd somewhere. In, but there's one really good one that he always uses or has a couple favorites and those, that's what goes through the PA. And that's, yeah, that's different than that time I saw a cheap trick at Mabel's and they ha- he had the wall of Marshall amps. But then if you looked off to the side of the stage, there were two twin reverbs mic'd up. And so he had the big wall behind Which him. Which wasn't even yeah. going right No, there was, was no sound coming nothing. out of it. He was, he yeah. was, everything was the two twin reverbs off to the side. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was going to bring up ACDC right when you did, Jim, because when I saw them, you know, I... I've gone through all these like machinations of like, well, I should have two different types of guitars and different tunings and all this stuff. And then I went and saw ACDC and he basically has one guitar. I think Uh he, she changes it out for the same guitar every once in a while, probably for tuning or I don't know why, but I was like, that's the way to play. Just get up there with your one guitar. And you know, if I didn't, I, I would love to to scale back my pedal board, but I don't know if I will. But I, I definitely got a smaller amp, one guitar, and then just play. And write the same song for 50 years. <laughs> and make billions of dollars doing it. Yeah. You got to write the rap song, I guess. Yeah, over yeah. and over again. I can't figure out which... I haven't found that song yet, yeah. unfortunately. We'll get there. Anyway, hear ye, hear ye. 
hear ye, all rise as lost and found and rewound. Bold claims court is now in session. Judge Jim is now presiding. On the docket today is Prince's 1999 versus Prince's Sign of the Times. Court is now in session. You may take your seats. <laughs> Speaking of seats, I had a hot seat question before we get into our case here. I don't know who the defendant or the plaintiff is, but we'll, I think we're both defendants. Hot seat question. Let's talk about movies. So Rick recently stated on a podcast that he had a controversial opinion about the Batman movies. Then he insinuated that all the Batman movies sucked. <laughs> so my hot seat question is, how is that controversial? <laughs> I don't know. I hear a lot of people say, you know. That people love the Tim Burton Batman movies, and then people love the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. No. There was never a good Batman movie. Maybe oh, the crazy. 60s one? I've never seen it. Oh, but. that one, actually. I saw that in college. It was like one of the earliest, you know, in the old days, you know, they'd have like weekends. They would show movies, 16 millimeter projection of movies at the college, and one of, you know, somebody's fundraiser or something, it was the Batman movie, and it... It had me in stitches. It was. It's a very funny movie. I don't know if it holds up fifty plus years later. Was it a, like a double feature with heavy metal or something? Wasn't that one of those? That was the kind of thing. Yeah, showed? it would be like that. It'd be the, like the Batman movie and and heavy metal. It's basically a long episode of the TV show. It's with with some higher production values. There's like a, a bat copter in it. Yeah, mm -hmm. but the production values are not that much higher. It's because the shark is what did it for me. They go outside. That's they're true. Out there. <laughs> I mean, they're not on soundstage for the movie. It's true. They do outdoor shots. Yeah, yeah. So that that scene where he's trying to get rid of a bomb. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. That's interesting. They ripped that off in a later in one of the Nolan Batman films. He's trying to get rid of a bomb too. Yeah, so it's probably a reference. No, make no mistake about it. Even the Nolan films sucked. Even though. They had a lot of the cast of Brokeback Mountain in them, or some of the cast, I should say. Yeah, those first, the first Tim Burton ones are, you can't see anything, right? That's all I remember. They're just really dark, crummy. The, the <laughs> problem I had is the Frank Miller Batman had already come out, you know, the comics, and they were yeah. super dark. And then thinking that Tim Burton, I, I, part of it was as I was really excited because I thought Tim, Tim Burton would go with it, and then he, he went a lot more wacky. Wacky, and yeah. And that bummed me out. And then by the time you got to Christopher Nolan, it was just like, okay, great. Batman's grumpy. Wow. That's really... <laughs> Nobody's made that Batman yet. Nobody's made that Frank Miller Batman. Yeah. The new one, right? The Batman will be that oh, movie, I right? I don't know. I don't think so. He's young. He's young in the new one. Yeah. He was old in the Miller films. Known to no one as the Chanhassen assassin, Prince slayed billions with his unique blend of punk pop and folk rock. He was the new wave equivalent of bad brains. He was a troubled and sad person, yet a consummate crusader for the inevitable equalization of humankind into a species indiscernible by race, gender, spirituality, and sexuality. He was the single most influential person on me musically. He is my favorite musical artist of all time. And like my favorite band of all time, Dinosaur Jr., I can only listen to a small fraction of his albums. Today, we will review one of those albums. I'm Chris Lost. <laughs> wait, wait. One of those albums? Wait, we're doing a Dinosaur Jr. review? I'm so confused. <laughs> I'm Found Jim. And I'm Camille! <laughs> Rick, 
rewound. <laughs> and Camille. <laughs> There's going to be a show in the future where I have to apologize to Dinosaur Jr. because Rick and Jim have played with them or some. I mean, I do. They're my favorite band of all time. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a couple perfect Dinosaur Junior records and then a bunch of good Dinosaur Junior <laughs> records, I'll say. Prince the same way. And speaking of Batman record, I did not like that record. Did you like Batman, no. Rick? No, yeah, no, he had lost me by then. Where did um, you Although fall I liked, uh, what's, what's the song with the chains? And I guess that's Bat Dance, right? I mean, I remember the video for Bat Dance. Is that the good song on that record? <laughs> I don't think there is a good song on that record, to be honest. My wife thinks it's Party Man. I re-listened to Party Man. It's terrible. (laughs) Maybe it's 200 Balloons. Who knows what good song could sit on that record. That was uh, Love Sexies where I I lost it with Prince. I mean, there's good records after all that, but... Uh, I mean, from For You through to Sign of the Times, I think is just an incredible streak of records. He did a career's worth of music in 10 years, so, yeah. Right. So it's nothing nothing, nothing to complain about. So is Love Sexy after Sign of the Times? It's the record right after Sign of the yeah. Times. Yeah, so Sign of the Times, yeah, that's where my collection ends. So I have Sign of the Times on vinyl and then nothing after that. So there was the Black Album, which was shelved for years. Right. And it came out later, and it's not bad, but it's it's not good. Either it's halfway between Silent Times and Love Sexy, which was a big drop off, I think. Although Alphabet Street, it's a good song. Yeah, I remember that song. I listened to both of these records, you know, in preparation. I did some preparation for this, but you know, I I, I think you you kind of can gather that compared to you two, I, I'm not as into Prince, but <laughs> I I'm, I'm I'm assuming I've never said that, you know, but I'm assuming you've kind of picked up on that. You guys are always talking about this, and this came up, and yeah, you just sit there and quietly. I, knew, I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I like Prince, but. I was, I know I was never into the, him as much as you guys. And I listened to these records and I realized, yeah, I, I knew I hadn't really listened to Sign of the Times ever, I don't think. And then I listened to 1999 and I realized, I don't think I ever listened to that record either. I know the first side, which is just the videos. I just know MTV. That's what I, I associate him with. It's like, yeah, it was, I was, I guess I was 13 when that record came out. And it was like, that was my friend Eric's basement is like MTV. He was my friend who had MTV and cable and... Those, those, they're the first three songs, right? Or, uh, 19, and then I was like, oh, I remember 19, that record. And then I started listening to it. I was like, wow, I, I don't think I ever really ever listened to it. Rick had, you had the, had a copy. I know yeah. I borrowed it. I listened to it maybe a little bit, but I don't remember. Yeah, there, there <laughs> so, were three other sides to the record. Yeah, I just, I must have just never got into it. And I always liked those, those three songs. And that's what I think of as Prince, you know, and, and I know. I've heard other things, obviously, through the year, through the culture. You know, it's impossible not to hear these songs. But yeah, Sign of the Times, I only knew like one or two. I just never listened to Prince records. So, Your Honor, uh, I would recommend. <laughs> I think I think you've made my point for me. Is you know, you said exactly what I was going to say. Is those those first three songs on 1999 are Prince, and I think my case is done. Our case is done, and I think I think the trial is done. I think. I think we're finished. I had more notes about the strength of 1999 than that. I would argue for a mistrial on behalf of 1999 if that's their representation. Is that now those three songs we're talking about? And by the way, the format here today is Rick is presenting. We're, we're debating which of the the only two Prince double albums that were ever released. I think that's an accurate statement. 
which of the two was the best. Rick is arguing 1999. I'm arguing Sign of the Times. And then Jim is, is the judge here. Side one of 1999 starts with 1999, Little Red Corvette, and then Delirious. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. That's uh, a hit. That's, that's a great A <laughs> side of any record right there. I would argue one of the best A sides. Yeah, maybe maybe the best side of any Prince <laughs> of any record. record. Yeah, ever. ever it's yeah. A, a bit short, though. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, even though which is ironic because these rec- these records go on forever. Some of these songs, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, but, I knew uh, that would come up. Yeah, there and and so Jim <laughs> just made my argument for why I think 1999 is a little thin is. <laughs> Once you get past the fourth song on the record, Let's Pretend We're Married, which I, I do love, you start to get into these long, repetitive uh, songs that don't add up to as much as I would argue the deeper cuts on Sign of the Times. Obviously, you don't party. You never had a party record. <laughs> That's Rick's imitation of the character Camille that Prince created when he was playing with gender, you know, gender being a, a big topic in, in current society, but Prince was playing with it back in the day. He created a female character, worked with female artists, and actually recorded a whole record uh, under the voice Camille. But Thank God never came out. Yeah, never. Was <laughs> Rick someone... is not a fan of Camille. <laughs> not at all. The only part of 1999 that bothers me a little bit is the slowed down voice at the beginning. Don't worry. I won't hurt you. Right. I only want to have some fun. It doesn't bother me as much, but the, the Camille voice definitely sets my teeth on edge after a while. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I don't mind Prince's falsetto. I like his falsetto. I just don't like that kind of manipulated, high-pitched voice that it really bothers me. It bothered me too when back in the day and like when he did songs like, I don't know if you've heard Bob George, Rick on, on the black album, that's where he does the whole song in this sort of double octave or maybe octave and a half lower. It just gets to be annoying. I, I've somehow grown, like I kind of dig it now. I'm not sure why, not the Bob George voice, but like the Camille voice I'm actually kind of comfortable with because it, it's uh I guess as I grew up, I'm a white kid who grew up in the suburbs, discovered Prince watching Purple Rain and then going home and getting the record and then started to retroactively get all the other records. I hadn't listened to a lot of funk up until that point. And then sort of when I got into later years in high school and college and adulthood, certainly went back and listened to a ton of funk and R&B. And then I realized that kind of manipulation of vocals and sound was a very funk style thing. George Clinton... And yeah. all those folks did part Funkadelic. They did it all the time. And that was just Prince's take on it. And I just realized it's it's a component of being funky. Screw with things in almost an awkward way, but then make it sound cool, which I think he did. All right. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Rick, is it are, are you are you resting your case on 1999? Because I have a lot more notes here. <laughs> oh no, no, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. So I I knew that the the issue with the length of the songs would come up, but I personally what I like about the longer songs is I don't lose my attention on them. I think of 1999 as as a record album four sides. You know, it's got the hit side, but it, I think it's also got you know these party songs. And so party songs should be longer. These long workouts, I, I don't know. I like them. And so my big thing is when I listen to all four sides of this record, 1999, I honestly don't get irritated and want to skip a song until uh, free 
which is <laughs> how many songs into this record are is that? It's uh, the eighth. eighth song. Yeah. Yeah, side three, last song on side three. Yeah. And so for me, at least, that's pretty good. I look at all of these songs and I feel like they're all pretty great. Even Free does not irritate me to no end. And I'm not a big fan. So that's the problem is, is I'm not a big ballad, Prince Ballad fan. And so I tolerate Little Red Corvette. I mean, I, I like it because of MTV and because it was the hit. I, I have a little resentment towards it because me personally, at the time, I thought Delirious was the best song in the world. It was the beginning of me wondering why. For instance, at around the same time, so Delirious wasn't the big hit off of 1999. It was Little Red Corvette. And 1999, the song I love, right? But Little Cor- Corvette's the hit. Like on Combat Rock, it's Should I Stay or Should I Go? I thought should be the bigger hit. And it's become, you know, a classic, but it, that was not the hit. It was uh, Rock the Casbah, right? Oh, Which yeah. is really strange to me. And then um, around the same time, uh, New Year's Day being the hit off of War, like the breakthrough song, as opposed to Sunday Bloody Sunday. Already, I was diverging from what even these, you know, new kind of unique artists that were coming out at the time. I was already getting upset that the hits were the wrong songs. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. Oh, but Little Ray Corvette, yeah, yeah, the ballad. You know, I, I, I like can... it, but it's an interesting. It's it's a weird ballad. So I I I liked it, and it had the electronics, you know, in it, and the characteristic strangeness of Prince at that time. So I I liked it, but it was not my favorite song. I find it unbelievable that you were surprised that the songs you liked better weren't the hits. I mean, after. I mean, haven't we all learned that in life? Like, even in your own band's releases, in the bands that we love to listen to? I mean, we've gone through the whole Soul Asylum thing. I don't think we would say Runaway Train was the best Soul Asylum song of all time. It's certainly the most popular. Uh, Mm -hmm. Where's Never Really Been or, you know, every song off of Made to be Broken. So that's surprising that that's surprising to you, that the hit, the most popular song, wasn't necessarily the best song. It was surprising when I was 16. I thought oh. I, was, I was already, I was diverging from my, my taste in music was diverging from the mainstream. So even these popular artists that I was, you know, I liked, it was, I was, I was realizing that I was out of touch. Here, here's the interesting thing. I'll show you my naivete, uh, naivete, back at, at that age, I rented a Prince concert that you could rent at Showtime Video, watched it. It was the 1999 tour very video-y, um, you know, not filmed, but on video. And he played Irresistible Bitch. And I was like, oh my God, this is an incredible song. And it wasn't available anywhere. I guess it was a B-side, I think, to one of the 1999 singles. But I was like, how could a song that good not even make the record? So, <laughs> so that was where I was kind of got clued into that B-sides, you know, could be amazing. There wasn't yeah. logic to why they were missing. It's like I bought uh, the Let's Dance single, David Boyd for uh, Cat People. That's why I bought the oh, B-side. Yeah. It's an amazing song. It was like, that's like, that's way better than Let's Dance. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I never played the A-side. I always played the B-side. Hey, this is Future Found Jim. I just wanted to clarify, I'm talking about the second version of Cat People, the one with uh, Nile Rogers and Stevie Ray Vaughan playing guitar, not the one that's in the movie. Thank you. Talk about a record that has barely any songs on it. Is it true that Let's Dance has seven songs on it? I feel like (laughs) 
I don't know. So there was something going on in the early 80s where this is an important part of my argument, actually, is that 1999 is a double album. I think it's a whole. I feel like it's cohesive. It's meant to be listened to or it can be listened to as a cohesive whole, right? You can sit through, which I did. I sit through, sat through and listened to the whole thing recently. As cassettes and CDs came in to play, the idea, well, especially CDs, the idea of a double album or just even a CD, you know, full of songs uh, and that idea of skipping songs. You're not listening to this as a whole. It's kind of like, oh, people are going to pick out songs from this large collection of songs and make their uh, comp tape of, you know, the best of Sign of the Times, right? Whereas I feel like even though, what, how many songs does 1999 have on it? 11, right? (laughs) It's 11 (laughs) songs on it, which, you know... If you just reduce it down to songs, that's like, oh, that's one, one album's worth. Like, if you total up the time, it probably would fit onto one CD. To me, it's, it's a double album. It makes sense as that. Sign of the Times feels like, to me, the other end of that, so the tail end of that era, where it's like, oh, okay, this is, this is a record full of stuff. It doesn't feel like a cohesive double album. It feels like a bunch of Prince songs. Hmm. And that's interesting. And part of it might also be because he worked through all of these genres and styles and then Sign of the Times feels like, so when I hear, so this is the thing is like, when I put on Sign of the Times and then I honestly got irritated with playing the sunshine and I was like, ah, you know what? I'm going to go to Housequake. (laughs) Now, to be fair, I watched the Sign of the Times live performance, the film that he made. Playing the sunshine's great on the live album. On Sign of the Times, I feel like, okay, that's the Around the World in the Day song. But you know what? You know, Raspberry Beret, I like better. I'm just going to go listen to Raspberry Beret, (laughs) you know, (laughs) instead of playing the sunshine. And so I think part of the problem with Sign of the Times is, for me at least, it's almost like a compilation album, but it's not necessarily, it's not, you know, how sometimes they say, oh, it's it's like a greatest hits, but it's just, this album sounds like a greatest hits. You know, that's, that's sometimes what people I think probably somebody probably said about Sign of the Times, but when I listen to it, I'm like, it's starting to feel like a compilation of different Prince eras experiments, and it's almost, it's got great songs on it, but it's also got, I feel like it's got a lot of B-sides on it. Whereas 1999, I feel like, is a coherent whole. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm reserving my Sign of the Times comments for when we talk about Sign of the Times, but I don't, I, I will disagree with that. I mean, I think, I think Emancipation, I think that's the record that has the, it's a three disc record. That's where it's a hit or miss and mostly misses. It sounds like he just grabbed a bunch of shit out of the vault and threw it onto a triple record because he, the record label never let him put out a triple record. And finally they did. And he put that out. You know, he just got as much junk on it as he could. I I think Sign of the Times, I'll I'll make this point and then we'll get back to 1999. Sign of the Times started out as a triple record, Crystal Ball. And then the label made him cut it down to two records. Right. I think it's very solid, as solid as, as any double record. And I think that 1999, it's interesting. You and I had the opposite reactions, or the same reactions, but to the different records. I don't think the repetition of 1999 works. It might in a club, but not as a listening experience. And those are just those long sort of drawn on riffs that just keep going on and on. The riffs aren't jimmy page level riffs that you can get away with running for you know 15 minutes and then there's a lot of seminal ideas that were better executed later like the solo on automatic is the same solo as darling nikki and that the b-sides of 1999 were better irresistible bitch and how come you don't call me anymore 
I think, are incredible songs that should have been on the main record. Well, here's part of my argument for 1999 is I feel like it's a template for the 80s. I feel like it's a template or it's it's the perfect distillation of what made Prince magical. When an artist finds that special chemistry, which he did. He was like experimenting in his lab. He finally got it. And this mix of rock and funk, basically Sly and the Family stoning the 80s, right? Basically defining the 80s in in one record. Controversy is great. It's almost there. But then 1999, it just all fuses together. And so when you talk about the solo on automatic and, oh, he does it better later. Yeah, maybe, but this is where everything came together. Maybe he does it again and he improves on it, but this is where he invented it and made it work, where everything that wasn't quite there all of a sudden got there, and to me, it's magical. I mean, yeah, it's going to be hard for me to talk about this without comparing Sign of the Times, and so here's my other hot take, is that 1999 is equivalent to London Calling, and then Sign of the Times is equivalent to Sandinista, and so Sandinista was mm. a three-record set, and my argument with Sandinista is it's, it's amazing, but it is also, I think it's one of those early examples so it would have been a cassette album where it's like you can make one great album out of Sandinista, but everyone's going to make a different <laughs> great album out of it, you know, making their cassette tape of all their favorite songs on Sandinista. And it's going to be the equivalent of a great single album. And that's what I feel like Sign of the Times is also. Whereas 1999, I guess, yeah, you can just have a tape with the first three songs and then maybe, I guess, yeah, the first two sides. Although, yeah, AUT, Omatic, Automatic. Yeah, no, I like the, I like these other songs. That's a great song, but that goes on forever. That that one, yeah. like Lady Cab Driver, I got into the, uh, like I said, yeah. I'd, I'd never heard that before. I, I, it's amazing. I really didn't listen to the rest of that record, but the jamming at the end of that, you know, that's yeah. And looking at it, it's eight minutes, eight minute long song, and yeah, it, it didn't bother me. But it was it was great to listen to these. I yeah, I'm <laughs> gonna go back and listen. Like you said, yeah, it's great to listen to them just all at once. I really never got into it. I, I'm purely a Prince singles is all I, I really ever knew back then. You know, I've slowly heard other stuff since then, but I definitely never yeah listened to the albums. I can never remember if it's the first, if it's Prince, Prince, or For You that is just rock solid from end to end. And Jim, you should go back and listen to all the records previous to Sign of the Times mm -hmm. because they are really good. There's sort of some hit or miss records, like I think Dirty Mind and, and Controversy are great, but they have some sort of blah tracks on them. Prince Prince with I Want to Be Your Lover, Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad, Sexy Dancer, I Feel For You. You know, to Rick's point that 1999 summed up the 80s, I feel like Prince Prince was a, a real nice exclamation point on maybe the end of 70s disco and dance and electronic R&B. Rick, I was expecting a couple arguments from you. One was I thought there might be a technical argument around some of the instruments that he used. And then Definitely. two, the film influences. He was highly influenced by Blade Runner and Idolmaker at the time. I was wondering if, if that had any retroactive influence on you or at the time? That's also my argument is the reason why this album is great is because it is that moment where the kind of lightning bolt hits and all the crazy Prince things come together. So not just the musical influence, influences, but also the visual influence, the, the, the focus on the color purple, right? <laughs> just the, the having a color and it being this strange kind of weird theme throughout it. 
this was before Purple Rain. And then when Purple Rain came out, it's like, what is the deal with purple in this guy? <laughs> and, and just kind of like capturing a color. And then I would say sonically, well, again, it's, it's always, I'm going to do a counter. It's like when I listen to Sign of the Times, I hear that era of synthesizers, samplers, Fairlight. You know, it, it's basically before and after Fairlight, right? <laughs> and so Sign of the Times is after Fairlight, the sampling kind of digital influence and 1999 is still before and the fact that he really found a way to make electronic music that was funky and rocked and mixed synthesizers and had dance elements but also had rock elements so that a kid who had been exposed to like disco sucks and thought they didn't like disco and then they hear prince and they like rock but then basically they're listening to dance music and him being able to figure all that out make it happen yeah meld rock and synth pop into this beautiful combination in 1982 on beautiful still analog synths and you know a Lindrum machine. It's a immensely powerful record, <laughs> and it had a powerful effect on me because it's like, oh, okay, I can like you know this is somebody who has who's using guitars, is kind of playing rock music, but is also playing funk, and then there's dance music, and it's got electronics in it, all of that merging together. Sign of the Times has the same thing, but by then it's like, ooh, I don't really need to hear the orchestral <laughs> Fairlight sample, you know, and it to me feels like. I don't know, the technology was overwhelming. I, I kind of feel like 1999 in a weird way, even though it sounds like 1982. I, I think it invented 1982. He invented 1982 on that record, but to me it sounds more organic and timeless than Sign of the Times. Sign of the Times, besides the lead song, I have a very hard time listening to because it places me in a very specific era, and I think it's all based on, well, yeah, maybe a lot of it is based on the, uh, the production and the technology used to make that record. My love of Sign of the Times has a lot to do with how that record sounds. We'll, we'll get into that uh, when we go a little deeper on that record. I want to make sure we, we give 1999 its due. But I think you and I took to each of these respective records for personal reasons, obviously, I guess it goes without stating, but to the production of, of the records for personal reasons. I guess 1999 I always saw as like, it had more hits. I, I actually saw it as less of a, a double album and more of an album with a bunch of hits on it and then some filler kind of get the same review sort of the reverse review whereas i felt like sign of the times and we'll get into that had a mood that transcended because of the production because of the songwriting because of the diversity of what he was trying to accomplish because of the way he would take an orchestra hit and kind of not use him use it as a gimmick but sort of use it as a um, sort of twist it in a funky way similar to the camille voice that he was doing more, there was more depth to what he was trying to accomplish rather than just write straight, straight ahead pop songs. And I think, you know, what you're arguing is, well, he, you're right, Chris, he did do that, but he missed, right? For you, there were just a lot of misses on Silent Times, or there's, there's ways to listen to it, or there's a path through it that makes it a great record, and there's paths through it that make it a, a bad record. But I saw it more as a, a cohesive collection. 1999, I felt like just fell off. It was like solid, 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 solid. And then at some point it started to fall off, then came back a little bit and then started to fall off. And then there were like moments just, just tapered. Whereas I think throughout Sign of the Times, there's A plus songs all through the record with some B and maybe a C song or two throughout. Whereas it seemed like 1999, it was just A plus, A plus, A plus, A plus, 
B, you know, and then sort of into the C's. <laughs> just just kind of just shove all the best stuff up front. So, and then just have the rest of the record. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it definitely leads with the hits, right? So they released that. That's the, the, the A side is, are the singles. They just basically released the A sides in order, right? I think that was the order. Yeah. I believe I think, like the yeah. A sides of the A side of 1999 was basically, yeah, the singles were up front. I'm also thinking about 1999. When I listened to it, I was sitting in my living room listening to it on vinyl, listening to it on a record player. And then I was doing other things, and I was thinking about, to me, 1999 has that feeling of being in your room as a kid, listening to records, maybe doing homework, or having the TV on at the same time. It's almost like, I don't want to say background music, I want to say that it's like, (laughs) I don't know, a, a full mood record in a way. How long is it? Hour? Hour and a half? I don't know what the total of 1999 is, but it's just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, this is, is going to define my evening. You know, I'm home on a weekday working on my homework. You know, you listen to 1999 all the way through it kind of, yeah, you have the hits and those are the songs you listen to. They're the songs that kind of pull you in, but then that vinyl deep listening experience, you know, put side B on and then put the other two sides on as the night goes on. Like I really felt that again when I was listening to 1999. And again, Sign of the Times because it is so many songs and the songs are shorter in a way, right? It's just like, here's another one, here's another one, here's another one, here's another one. And the reason why I like 1999 is like, okay, here's like, bam, 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 right? You get punched, (laughs) one, two, three punch, right? And then you get the longer grooves and you get the, the workouts. Thinking back on the production side of it, the fact that it is still mostly him playing. Very little of 1999 besides the vocals, right? And what, the solo on 1999 is anyone else, right? Everything else is Prince. So it is still Prince by himself, but somehow it feels performed. It doesn't feel completely canned by like one person by themselves. It still has, it has the very electronic, you know, early synth pop sterility in bits and pieces, but he brings so much life into it. And I think that's an amazing feat. And I think part of that comes from those long workouts. But yeah, I mean, he could use an editor. I think that's the one thing. And that's, uh, what's what's her name? The engineer, Susan Rogers, is that her name? Susan Rogers, yeah. You know, said that, you know, he needed an editor. He needed to work with other people. I'm paraphrasing, but I think this is what she was getting at. She felt like he kind of stalled because he just kept sort of focusing inward and then, you know, would, you know, hack off, you know, if, if someone became a collaborator and started becoming more and more involved in the records and then they'd get hacked off right and then he'd start again and go back and you know work by himself and i almost feel like sign of the time sound yeah maybe sounds a little bit i'd have to listen to it again but it does feel a little less organic it's so many songs it's like here's another great here's another one here's another one here's another one there's no time no rhythm and breathing room and structure to it in a way yeah i mean that's a great argument that it definitely, if you're just getting, you know, he hits you with like, here are the, here's the the solid, sharp, short punches of what this record's about. Now let's settle into it for the next 60 minutes and you can enjoy just the groove of it as you go through things. Whereas you're right, it is a sort of a barrage, a nonstop barrage with Sign of the Times. Both records recorded in two different homes. I think uh, the Gelpin home is is the one that Sign of the Times was recorded in. And then this little, the smaller brown home 
was where 1999 was recorded. He did bring in some of the revolution to do some of the vocals and some of the guitar. Like I think the guitar solo on Little Red Corvette is not Prince. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, the Little Red Corvette solo is Des. Yeah. And then I yeah. think Des does might be the low voice on the opening of 1999. Yeah, yeah he's the the voice. Yeah. And then Lisa, Wendy, and Susan Levelin. I, I uh, it's Lisa, either Lisa or Wendy's Lisa, sister does some singing yeah. on the record as well. One of um, them was already part of yeah in the circle before the other one, right? Yeah, yeah. Lisa, yeah. Melvoin, was, right? Yeah. Right. But I think actually, I think there were more musicians on technically on Sign of the Times, but a lot of it too was recorded by himself, both pre Paisley Park. In fact, I think Love Sexy might have been the first Paisley Park record, which is a bummer because you know you would think Paisley Park was where was sort of his epic final resting place of, of where he could do this greatest stuff, and actually his best stuff was done all prior to that studio being around. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue, but that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco Taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're gonna love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. All right, so before we get off of 1999, should we talk about the film Idolmaker? Because sure. I watched it, Rick watched it. Jim, did you watch Idolmaker? No, I didn't. Yeah, I had a question, Rick. If you had to guess, what nationality are the characters in the film Idolmaker? <laughs> <laughs> I guess they're Italian, right? Well, but there's, you think, well you think, they're Jewish. There's, yeah, what's weird is... yeah, Not, not the seems, actors, the yeah. characters. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. You could see a lot of, a lot of influence on Prince in this movie. Uh, it was all Italians mm-hmm. uh, being Italians. I think I had a note here. Italians need to be more respectful to Italians. <laughs> and they, they actually say... Oh, this is a quote. Italians need to be more respectful to Italians. Don't be spaghetti brains. <laughs> what did you think, Rick? Good film? I thought it was an okay film. I really liked it as a music industry film. It's interesting because it's about a songwriter and a producer star maker, Sven Gali. That was common in the era that it's talking about, I guess, what, the early 1960s. As Elvis was disappearing and then the Brill building. No, what's the other one? You know, John Kirshner was, uh, yeah, just all those, that kind of era of songwriting 
that Carol King came out of and Neil Diamond came out of. And so this film is about, it's kind of, you know, follows the Neil Diamond, Carol King stories where these people were just songwriters and they wrote songs and they made other people famous. And then at some point they decided that they should be the stars, right? Instead of having to deal with all these pretty faces and middling talents, right? <laughs> and, 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 and became their own artists. And, and so I, I like that. I, I'm trying to think. There are other films now, more recent films about that era, but this, this was an early example of that. But yeah, as a movie itself, it's kind of, ugh. But seeing Peter Gallagher and Joey Pants, you know, show up in their early films, Guido and, the Killer Pimp. Interesting mm-hmm. that Joey Pants was the only person in the film not chewing the scenery. Right, like he's exactly. he's typically the only guy in a film chewing the scenery, and in this film, he was the only reserved character. We did learn Amazing. five minutes into the film that women don't want blonde singing yeah. idols; they want dark hair. So, how do you I feel that about that? That was really that? interesting. Yeah, no, I I thought that was that was really funny because I think that was a commentary to show how different it was back then. Because at that time, when the film was actually made, like what 1980, you know, that had changed. I mean, in the late 70s early 80s blonde pop singers were popular right right whereas there was an era where <laughs> the brown-haired black-haired you know italian singer was the icon of or the apex of beauty or handsomeness or whatever you want to say now yeah. you know why i keep saying we need to make america great again we need to go back to this <laughs> bygone era of when dark hair of course my hair is now silver right <laughs> so i <laughs> I missed the boat. So watching the Idol Maker, what was great about it is like once you know, so Prince, you know, very soon around the time of 1999, started moving from just being you know focusing on Prince, but it was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help out Morris Day. I'm gonna put a band together with him as opposed to him being my competition. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put together a band for my old friend as opposed to, I guess, probably because he had already won the contest, right? So it was like, oh, I'm gonna form the time for Morris, and then I'm gonna do Vanity Six and what, what was the other stuff, the family, and and that idea of being. Uh, a songwriter, star maker, producer. You can see it within the Idol Michael. And then some of the musical stuff too, though. So I feel like some of the elements of early 60s, you know, girl group music, you can hear traces of it in 1999 in an odd way. I'm trying to remember where I hear it. Well, Delirious, I guess, feels a little bit like that. But there's there's some elements where it's like, oh, it's not just funk and rock and contemporary stuff. There's there's a little bit of the 60s pop group. Yeah, it's like when I was listening recently to Billy Squire and listening to The Stroke, and I was like, how could I have missed this? I'm an idiot. This is just like one of those old do the twist. It's it's just another dance song, but they put it to like a Led Zeppelin rock riff. I'm like, is it, it, that's what, if you listen to it, it's like everybody, have you heard? You know, there's a brand new dance and yeah. it strokes the word. It's like, this is one of those stupid gimmicks dance songs. It's, a twi- it's the twist. Yeah, he just yeah. redoes the twist. And it's great. So there, there's two moments in Idolmaker that Prince totally lifted. There was this song called Sweet Little Lover, which was clearly sort of the darling Nikki moment. The character was sort of pissing off everybody with a sort of provocative performance. And then the end where this, because I felt like Purple Rain, he, Prince was playing both characters or all three characters. Yeah. He was playing the songwriter behind the two guys and the two guys and their their progressions. But the end was super Purple Rain. His scorned lover and bruised bandmates recognized the triumph of I Believe It Can Be Done which is the song that the songwriter plays at the end and at the piano and sort of a Barry Manilow moment to your point. 
Rick about yeah. people who are making oh, yeah, people Barry famous. Manilow too. Yeah, yeah, so many of these people. Yeah, who kind of made that jump. Um, but then also kn- knowing that Prince was also super into Quadrophenia and Blade Runner, and you know, seeing all of that fused together in the visuals for the record. So yeah, not even realizing. So I guess when I saw the videos, when I got the record, you see the band, the full band, you know, on the cover art. Or on the sleeve, and so my assumption was, is this was a band, and looking at them, it was, and it's pre-Buckaroo Banzai, so everything that's magical about Buckaroo Banzai, the, the crazy combination of characters and looks and, and everything like that, Prince, you know, did an amazing job. I, I guess it's kind of adopting the P-Funk thing, but making it so it's not as silly, you know? In some ways, the P-Funk characters are, you know, silly, right? They're Outrageous. Outrageous, yeah. <laughs> And with Prince, it it was it was a little more like oh like rock starry, but like ooh new. It was just kind of like okay, everyone's gonna have to dress differently now. That '70s rock star look it was being replaced just in the same way. You know, the aesthetics of Blade Runner. You know, was just like wow. And then yeah, Quadrophenia, kind of the mod look and the trench coats, and he had a lot of influence. I mean, he obviously was influenced by new wave clothing but i think he also influenced that yeah i think he did it better like i said i think he's the bad brains of new wave i think he came (laughs) along after a genre was established destroyed it you know with like incredible prowess and then moved on sort of like bad brains showed up were the best hardcore band of all time and then decided they wanted to be the best reggae band of all time and kind of moved on to that right a similar progression Uh, any final closing arguments for 1999 record like you've said your piece, but whatever you'd like to add. I didn't realize that it was not on the same level as Sign of the Time. So, you know, I'm looking around. I started, you know, when when I was doing my research, and it seems like it's almost universal that Sign of the Times is his best record. I don't understand why 1999 is not even talked about. It's like people then talk about, what do they talk about? They talk about Purple Rain, which is great, but it's kind of like that's, that's already the commercial version. Right. It's, it's kind of like, oh... We've already lost Prince to everyone else, right? Whereas 1999 to me feels like, okay, this is where he made the jump, but he didn't go stratospheric where every, you know, it was like you could still be cool. <laughs> like, so I was in a band with these older guys and they, one the drummer in it, he knew Prince already. He was like, oh yeah, the new record. Yeah. Cause you know, have you heard Controversy? And I was like, what? I've never heard of Prince before that. And he was like, oh yeah, Prince is great. You know, so like hipsters knew Prince older hipsters you know he was already making inroads and then definitely 1999 and you know mtv it 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 definitely made him took him up a level but it still felt like he was not an underground artist but like at least different right like not well (laughs) not on the level of yes or something we we should mention that historically so 1999 was what they're trying to frame now is his retort to the fact that he was vehemently booed off the stage i think two or three times for two or three shows with the rolling stones in los angeles so he kind of came back hunkered down and wrote this record that he wanted to cross that line he wanted to break into white music and 1999 was him putting his first foot and you know very successfully getting on mtv which other black artists struggled to do i just watched the rick james documentary and almost to a to his, you know, Rick James's complaint because he was complaining about not getting on MTV. They said, "Well, forget it. We're not putting this guy on to use an asshole." And then, then they went to, "Well, who's next? Michael Jackson, Prince." So, Rick James, yeah. I would argue, got 
black artists on MTV is a big part of 1999's success, big part of Thriller's success, because he made such a stink about it. But unfortunately, because he made such a stink about it, Rick James didn't get his phenomenal music on, on MTV. Yeah, I don't know where I heard this, but I do... I thought I heard that Rick James was, you know, pretty pissed. He thought a lot of what Prince was doing was his shtick. I think he felt like, Rick James felt like, why is Prince getting all of this attention by basically just copying all of my <laughs> fusing of funk and rock and, you know, the kind of science fiction-y type costuming and, and the... I, th I think the multicultural band, right? I I, I think sex. <laughs> or the yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, yeah, yeah, the the sexuality. Yeah, that's right. Going over the line, you know, <laughs> that had been drawn, pushing that that line, the the sexual side of rock and roll or just pop music had pushing the envelope on that had disappeared. It wasn't scary anymore or dangerous or whatever to grown-ups. There's a lot of beefs to be had, like Rick James, Little Richard, Jimi Hendrix, Joni Mitchell. I mean, Prince borrowed liberally from all these people. Images of the Sign of the Times poster that I had in my room looked just like Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. He had all this hippie stuff on and hair froed up like Hendrix, and you know, he looked just like him. And he, I don't think he ever made any bones about the fact that he was borrowing from tons of different influences. And even the, re the replacements in Soul Asylum had a huge influence on Prince. Yeah, just the fact that he lived in the Minneapolis area and listened to the radio, <laughs> you know, the local radio. Yeah, definitely. I mean, every artist borrows from their influences, right, and synthesizes stuff together. And I think Prince, it's just a matter of whether or not you, you uh, what, what you create from those influences is unique, new, goes above, right? You create something new out of your influences. And I definitely don't feel like Prince is just a copycat, he definitely had a huge number of influences and threw them into the stew and came up with something super unique and interesting and powerful that really created the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's, why, that's why I think 1999 is, is important because that's where it happened. That's where it all came together. I wouldn't argue with you there. It's a great record. It's an awesome record. Mm -hmm. I two, two questions before we finish on 1999. What was the last line to the song 1999? Do you know, Rick? Daddy... Why does everybody have a bomb? It's actually mom, That's the, uh, mommy. Mommy. Oh, yeah, not daddy. Sorry. You got it right. And then what does DMSR stand for? Dance, music, sex, romance. Nice. Wow. This guy knows his <laughs> 1999. That's... I didn't know that. I like the record. I, yeah, no, it's a great record. A lot of people do think Sign of the Times is one of his best records. I, I don't think it's his best record. Uh, I think it's his best double album. But... Uh, <laughs> But I think Hit and Run Part 2 could arguably be his best record. Parade could arguably be his best record. What's uh, Hit and Run Part 2? It's his last record, which, oh, wow. yeah, which I, I really love. To that. Parade. You really like Parade. I love Parade. I think Parade. Just it's editing. You know, Talking about having a great editor, that record was impeccably edited and just you know, no fluff. I guess where does Parade fall now that I think about it? It's right before, isn't it? Right before Sign of the Times. Fire Sign of the Times. That's right. Before Sign of the Times. Yeah. Yeah, because I have that record. <laughs> I have that on vinyl too. So I have everything from nineteen ninety nine through Sign of the Times in my collection still. So Jim, before I go on my diatribe about Sign of the Times, you were giving your thoughts about nineteen ninety nine. I want to give your thoughts about Sign of the Times. Like I said, it's very new to me. So it was great to listen to. I, I did like the production. That's what stood out to me. I don't know if I would have liked it. Well, I'm sure I would have liked it then, but it's really spare. 
I guess 1999 is kind of like that too after listening to it. But it just seems very open. It's not like overly uh, arranged and produced or, you know, there's not tons of layers. So it seems like a lot of it is kind of just open and kind of simple. Not not simple, but just not, there's not tons of layers of things going on. And that kind of stood out. Kind of clean sounding, not, not sterile, but just like, sounded like instrument it didn't sound like digital like all cold or it was like kind of still even though it was a lot of yeah like you said like fair light stuff and it still sounded kind of real <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't too empty you know it's, it's still it's it just again yeah the same with 1999 that just yeah they're long <laughs> but i can see it, it's something just to turn on and like rick was saying with the 1999 to just have it going and it's interesting i just yeah i had no contact with it before except for the hit what i consider the hits whatever you know the you got the look i like sign of the times i didn't really even know i was kind of surprised yeah i didn't realize that got radio release but it did get released to the release yeah. radio that's why i bought the record hmm. sign of the times i mean i think maybe part of my problem with the album sign of the times is that i think it's possible that the song sign of the times is my favorite prince song Mm -hmm. Because of what you're talking about, Jim, is the minimalism of it. In the same way that 1999 had a profound effect on me as a musician and as a listener, you know, and it, yeah, it was like, yeah, like finding a pathway from, you know, listening to classic rock and then like discovering an artist like 1999, I guess, you know, is his fifth album. But for me, it was like, oh, this is a new person, someone who's not from the 60s in the same way that all of 1999 and who Prince was and the way he looked and the way the band looked. Um, hearing the song Sign of the Times had a profound effect on me because of how it is like almost avant-garde where it was like, oh, I heard this on the radio. This is the new Prince song. He's, you know, a superstar. And here is something even more so than Kiss, right? So Kiss is pretty amazing, but there's still, like if you knew James Brown, it was like, okay, Kiss is super minimal and a really amazing song, but you can also hear that he's, it's like, oh, let's take James Brown and reconfigure him for the 1980s, whereas Sign of the Times is just like completely unmoored in, in everyone else, what everyone else was doing at the time. I think the song Sign of the Times sounds like a pure Prince composition. I don't feel like when I listen to it, I don't hear anybody else, else's influence and I hear something that I hadn't heard before, like this minimalist, political, pop, but also experimental song. It was almost like any other song on that record is, is a disappointment. Mm, that's <laughs> interesting. Sign of the Times is so overwhelming. Like, I can listen to that song for the rest of my life, I think. And so if I look at my record after I bought it, it, it is <laughs> like there's, a, there's like a skip after Sign of the Times, because obviously I was just picking up the stylus and moving it back to the beginning and listening to Sign of the Times over and over again. And then everything else I listened to later, but it was just like that song is so profound to me and so amazing and so earth-shattering that it's hard to have it exist with the rest of the record. Yeah, I'd argue the ballad of Dorothy Parker, Starfish and Coffee have those qualities too. They're very sparse percussion and vocals mostly with just accents by other music, other instruments. But you're right. I mean, if that was your, if that's what you affixed to, I mean, the rest of the record does get very different. The thing is, is that like the Ballad of Dorothy Parker and Starfish and Coffee, you can play as songs, right? I think they can exist outside of 
the record. And, you know, obviously people, I'm sure, have done Sign of the Times covers, and I listened to Prince's live version of it. There's something about it being just a pure studio creation. It's almost impossible to separate the production from the composition. Part of what makes it powerful is not just the lyrics, the melody, the progression, but also the instrumentation and the technology and the recording, again, the minimalism of it that makes it powerful. Whereas the Ballad of Dorothy Parker, well, I'm, I'm not, a, I, Ballad of Dorothy Parker, I don't like that much. Hmm. That's another one of my skippers. Um, <laughs> I love that. That's one of my favorite Prince songs of all time. Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Star, Starfish and Coffee, I think, is a great song, but it's a song. It's not a peak of production and songwriting and fusion like i feel like when people talk about studio as instrument or prince working in the studio by himself and writing a song and working with the technology i feel like sign of the times is a pure expression of that it's hard to separate the production from the composition whereas i think you can separate the production from the composition on those other songs you mentioned yeah, and to, to make your point when he would play sign of the times live it would just be him to a backing track and then the band would come out at the very end and just play that snare drum those snare drum rolls and then they dissipate into their various instruments and start playing the, yeah. the all band songs the, so I'll, I'll just explain why I love this record I'm not sure if this is a good record or not I got into Prince when I went and saw Purple Rain at the LaGrange Theater I secretly bought a copy of Purple Rain and listened to it in my home I didn't tell anybody I liked Prince except for my friend Brad we listened to 1999 and Purple Rain, you know, and didn't tell anybody we liked Prince. And we should explain to everyone, your friend Brad, that's kind of like Camille. It's it's your imaginary friend that you <laughs> would listen to records like with. No. <laughs> no, actually just, he lives in Las, Brad is real. He lives in Las Vegas. I just traded several texts with him. Hey, Brad. Okay, Chris, that's fine. This is 1987. But, well, I'll say you, you like the, the vinyl experience in 1999. I bought this album on cassette dual cassette and it was a time where i the only car i had was my mom's 1977 monte carlo which she would let me drive on occasion and i took it over i had gotten a job at pizza hut and i had gotten enough money to buy a radio shack tape player to replace the eight track tape player in my mom's car so i took it over to my friend one of my friend mats there's we've established there's several mats one of them's uh one of the mats his dad is a uh, an engineer so he and his dad put the tape player into my mom's car, and then I proceeded to drive around endlessly and listen to this album. You know, with a cassette while you're driving, it's very hard, just like it's hard to pick up the needle and skip songs. So I listened to, you know, the whole record, both cassettes, over and over and over again. And I was super depressed, super melancholy just down and to me there's something really depressing about cassettes maybe it's because when i ran away from home for two weeks i had a bag full of cassettes and my walkman <laughs> and that was it and i would just sit or i just walk the streets listening to like talking heads prince and genesis <laughs> i mean that's a pretty depressing existence for two weeks but uh i can almost hear this is bizarre to say but just like you can hear the needle revolving on a record you could almost hear the tape going over the head of the cassette particularly in a car where the hiss is you know there and loud and and to me the color yellow everybody talks about this record being like a party record or a fun record i read it as a very depressing record a melancholy record i think prince was you know breaking up with his longtime girlfriend breaking up with his longtime band these songs are all pretty glum i think even you know even play in the sunshine the way they recorded it seems pretty down so my first 
relationship with this record was it was the soundtrack to the way I felt just as a 17 year old kid who, you know, was an idiot and bummed out and, um, not really sure, you know, how long I was going to kind of go through life. And then, um, then I got a hold of the movie and then my friend Matt on his parents' stereo system, which was amazing, recorded, had they had a stereo VCR, recorded the soundtrack of the movie onto a cassette for me so I could listen to the live version of Play in the Sunshine, which is incredible, the live version of I Never Place, Never Take the Place of Your Man, which are far better than the record versions and show off his prowess and virtuosity as a guitarist. And so that was sort of exciting and energizing to re-listen to the record through the the movie performance, although... Now, I would say the movie's not even nearly as good as the uh, New Year's Eve performance of this record that comes with the ultimate box set. There's a DVD that comes with it, and that's even more incredible. So, uh, And I love Sheila E. I loved all her percussion and her playing. It was incredible that she was just this monster drummer. I thought she was just a timbale player. Turns out she's you know one of the best drummers, rock drummers of all time. And so for all those reasons, I just really loved it. And I do think... I know, Rick, you kind of grow tired of some of these songs, but I mean, throughout every side, there's great songs. Oh, yeah. There are chores, like The Cross is a bit of a chore. Adore is a bit of a chore. But like even some of the ballads, Slow Love, Forever in Your Life, If I Were Your Girlfriend, they were just so strange. And if we look at it retroactively, I'd make the case that he started playing with gender. uh, Well, he started playing with gender, I think, from the start. But this record really opens that up a lot and sort of puts him in different places. And it's it's interesting for someone in 1987, and maybe some people who listen to this won't understand this because you weren't around back then, but being LGBTQ or being pro-LGBTQ in 1987 was almost non-existent, particularly for a 17-year-old boy in an all-white suburb. So I'm not saying I was a progressive thinker back then. I'm not claiming that I was, you know, woke. I wasn't. But it definitely definitely was pushing my mind in, in directions that I thought were very strange, very taboo. And I think that that, you know, was good. It would eventually have an influence on me. I'm not saying... It influenced me then. I was probably just as close-minded and as anybody around me at the time. But uh, I definitely was. It was opening me to things that I wasn't getting from the other Prince records. The other Prince records to me felt like hit after hit after hit, with the exception of like some of the dirty stuff on the earlier records. And that's why I took to it. And again, I don't know if it's good or not, but it definitely was the soundtrack to how I felt for that period of time. And that's why I have a, an immense amount of loyalty to it. And, I, and again, I don't think it's his best record. Well, yeah, so you were listening to Prince before Sign of the Times, but I do feel like some people really gravitate towards this record because it's kind of their first, they're a little younger, right? And it's their first experience with, yeah, the first time they kind of got the full Prince experience, right? So when you get the full Prince experience, that's probably your favorite Prince record, right? Well, I wouldn't say this is my full Prince experience, but this was my full right. experience with Prince, with him being the way you felt he was being on 1999. Like, this is, mm-hmm. Prince's had set aside, okay, I did Purple Rain, nothing but hits. Around the World in the Day, I love that record. I think it's, you know, full of yeah. hits. Parade, full of hits. And, and that's where some, some of the deep cuts are just as good or better than the hits. And then he puts this record out. So it's a, it's, it gives you two full albums or two full discs to consider what he's trying to accomplish artistically. And because it's so long, it can't just be seven songs where every song is a hit. Right? You could probably go through this record, strike out half the songs 
and come up with an amazing album, just a nonstop hit machine. But this one forces you to listen to the deeper cuts. And I think this time I'm four Prince records in, and this is the first time I'm starting to see him as more than just a pop artist. I see him as somebody who's a, a musician or an artist. It kind of goes back to the Sandinista argument where when I listen to it, it's like, I think there's one good album here. I want the album with all the hits. Now I was, yeah, when I was saying before with 1999, it's like, oh, the one, two, three punch. And then you, you know, it's not like just hitting you over and over again. But when I listen to Sign of the Times, again, the whole album, I don't get that cohesive feeling like I'm being submerged. I, I, I obviously being, you're being submerged into the world of Prince, but there's so, so many worlds, right? Whereas I feel like 1999 is, has got variety, but it's, it's one world. And that's what, to me, an album experience should be. Whereas Sign of the Times feels like it's like a photo album or something. And it's not an album of one journey. <laughs> it's like a bunch of stuff. And it's like, I don't know if I need to see the slides of your trip to <laughs> Tokyo. Show me the great photographs, you know, or like just 10 great photos you took on your vacation and put that into a, an exhibition. Well, and maybe because I'm younger, I'm a little more OCD, right? The, the old, the younger we get the, and to the, to the extreme of our children now who can't stand to listen to something that's the same for one minute. Um, you know, whereas you could listen to a whole double album of sort of the same kind of music. I like this record because it would shake it up every once in a while. And, and, and the songs were shorter and it kind of helped divert my attention a little bit as I got across it. I would argue that all of what you said is accurate. I do think that there is one mood to this record, and that is sort of a depressed, melancholic mood, and that's what I kind of logged into. Not the not the changing styles of the songs, but that all of the songs seem to be saying, I'm blue, or I'm purple, or <laughs> however you want to <laughs> describe it. Or I'm yellow, yeah. really, because yellow is the color of this record. It makes me feel a little bit better, because I talk about like my creative process and how there's a lot of negativity in it topically and so what makes me depressed is that i feel like i i haven't successfully bridged the gap of you know writing you know really depressing songs then they're still enjoyable whereas prince and it made me realize as you're talking about this and thinking about sign of the times but also thinking about 1999 which you know the the lead track of 1999 similar to sign of the times but the lead track of 1999 is about oh there's, there's going to be a nuclear war, which is what everyone my age was worried about, younger and older, and, and it's like, we're all going to die. And he, he goes, well, we're all going to die in a nuclear war, but so we should party, right? <laughs> and so, like, kind of super depressing, you know, heavy issues within a pop context where you enjoy listening to it, and it, it's almost uplifting. Yeah, so that, that same idea, that's... that's you know, you could almost say, I mean, I don't I don't think necessarily people think of Prince as being this dark character, right? Or, you know, kind of being a downer, right? right? But if you start tearing apart all these songs, especially Sign of the Times, right? But like you said, just in general, the whole album, right? It's like, if you dig, dig, like, it's not even deep. You just dig a little bit. It's like, wow, this is not all happy, fun music. He's He's really exploring some heavy stuff. And yet, most people are listening to it. I'm assuming because it's it's entertaining, right? It's it's pop music. It's it makes them happy. Mm-hmm. It does. Right? Yeah, he pulled off the the perfect trick. You know, he wrote these great fun songs that everybody's dancing to, and they're all about the bomb. Of course, Prince didn't make it to see a nuclear war. And I guess part of the point is we're all going to die, right? Like we're none of us. It's true. We're going to die one way or another. Why not party? <laughs> and, and is it? Yeah. I don't know if that's nihilistic or optimistic, but. 
it's pretty realistic. So I don't know that that kind of brings you down too. <laughs> you're 17 years yeah. old. You don't want to start thinking about mortality. Of course, I had other reasons to think about mortality at that age, but like it's a bummer. I don't spend a lot of time. I mean, I teach people much younger than me, and and thinking about you know how much they have to deal with and how bummed out they seem, <laughs> right? And then I'm realizing, oh, that's that is part of that transition, right? That's the whole freaking transition from being a child to an adult, right? Is like realizing that it's it's not even that it's simply like, oh, I scraped my knee and I'm going to cry and then I'm going to, you know, play ping pong and I'm going to be happy, right? <laughs> right? And then it's like as you become an adult, it's like, oh, even though, you know, I can play ping pong right now, but it's not going to solve the problem that I'm going to die or there's going to be a nuke or there's going to be a pandemic, right? It's like coming to terms with the complexity of life as not just being this binary happy, sad world, right? So it's, yeah, this is helping me understand that it's just, I don't know. It's, it, well, he's a great artist, right? He's not just writing stupid pop songs. Right. That's why Prince is a great artist. And so if you think about, no, nah, I mean, so I don't spend a lot of time listening to Bruce Springsteen, but it's, and I do listen to the, I have listened to the police more recently, um, but you know, the every breath you take and the uh, born in the USA syndrome, right? Where it's like these people somehow figured out a way to write Right, getting every breath you take played at a wedding is like brilliant. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah. It's just like maybe it's just a characteristic of that era. Yeah, it's it's probably a characteristic of that era is where we went through this. You know, so when you think about Joni Mitchell and the singer songwriter era, where you're you're talking about what you're feeling and how you're living in the world, you're not talking about the Monster Mash or <laughs> my boyfriend's the leader of the pack. You know, these these weird little vignettes that are not based in anyone's. <laughs> Maybe they are. I don't know. Yeah, my boyfriend's back. I guess that's... There never was a monster mash, if that's what you're trying to <laughs> right. get to, Rick. I don't <laughs> exactly. think there was a monster a... mash. I think that was completely fictitious. Yeah, the influence of the 70s singer-songwriter era, but then fusing it with the kind of rebirth of pop music, I guess. Yeah. And the fusion of that, mixing those two together. So you have someone like Sting, who's a the blonde marquee, you know, <laughs> singer, but he's singing all these deeply depressing and creepy and pseudo-intellectual songs, let's say. Yeah, yeah, no. Reading, you know, Young, writing songs based around Carl Jung's ideas, you know, and it's like, that's fine, Prince, as long as you sell a million records or 10 million records, you can call it synchronicity. Right. <laughs> you know, I was speaking to a, a class of college students the other day, and I was like, I'm beyond being understanding that I'm old, now I just don't know how old I am. I'm like, do you kids know what Friends is? Do you kids know who Hillary Duff is? And they're all like, you know, like they, they're like, yeah, Friends is on reruns. And Hillary Duff was, I guess yeah. there was some Nickelodeon characters she used to play. I, I looked at them and I was like, you know, it's really a blink of an eye between when I was in that chair and me standing up here. In that amount of time, I'll be dead. So it's, it's just like... <laughs> It's a really grim thought. It, no, so here's my advice, Chris. Don't say that stuff to college students. Did you say that I didn't say that to them. No, I did tell them I, I met Hillary Duff, but that was it. <laughs> I stopped there. As a quick diversion before we get to your ruling, Jim, <laughs> I wanted to play a game called uh, The Vault, True or False. I'm going to list a project, and I want you to tell me true or false and we'll let you each go at it tell you who like i'll keep score as we go <laughs> this is called brother versus brother true or false since, since rick and i had to go at it the whole 
podcast. Maybe we give Jim a chance. True or false? There is an untitled EP with Kim Basinger, Ween, and Ozzy Osbourne on it. Boy, the Kim Basinger thing. I know they were in a relationship, right? So Ween, Ween was on Twin Tone before they were on whatever major label they were on. So they were on a. They would have been probably played on many Minnesota radio, Minneapolis radio. What was the last? Person? Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. True. And I have to go. False. <laughs> Point to Rick. True. <laughs> Amazing. All right. True or false, there are four Dave Perner collaborations, four full albums <laughs> with Dave Perner in wow. the vault. Four. And I have to say false. I agree. <laughs> that's, I agree that's false. You're both wrong. There's four. <laughs> There's P there's P to P PXP, which is hardcore project with Dave Perner from Soul Asylum. There's P2P, slow jam project with Dave Perner from Soul Asylum. There's PNP 242, industrial project with Dave Perner from Soul Asylum, and then PP, a Chuck Berry tribute album with Dave Perner from Soul Asylum. Four full albums. You Dave this Perner. is true. It's true. <laughs> you, and PNP means Prince and Perner. Prince and Perner, yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. Some things should be left in the vault. <laughs> True or false, there is a tribute album to Heath Ledger called Joker. Jim. I'm going to go false again. Okay. Rick? I'm starting to feel like these are all true <laughs> because I feel like that's a strategy you would, you would take. So my heart says false, but my mind says true. Rick gets a point, so it's two to zero. <laughs> so it's true? It's true. I mean, okay, I, I feel like... I mean, I'm I'm really worried about Prince. I know he's dead, <laughs> but there was something wrong with him. I mean, mm -hmm. it's beautiful that we got this music and he made the music, but the amount of work he did and just knowing about the stuff that's in the vault, it feels like an unhealthy addiction, not a healthy creative process. When you start talking about these things that are in the vault, it feels a little like madness and it upsets me it does it is it makes me me upset true or false there's an album called joker 2 a collection of songs written for jared leto including the focus track thirsty jim we'll start with you true or false false absolutely right. i am i'm gonna say false right did was jared leto joker before prince died it's true that exists <laughs> it is in the true. vault. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. This. So you're right. I'm... You're right about my approach to this game. You should have stuck oh. with your instincts. <laughs> wow. It, 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 yeah. I mean, to me, the vault was abstract. You know that he had hundreds of tapes. I got a lot of tapes in my basement. It's not a vault. And a lot of them are just from one record that we started recording. And it's just like we... We had money to buy 24-track tape. We kept all, all the takes for one record. So in my mind, when I thought about the vault and having hundreds or thousands of reels of tape, and now I realize that that wouldn't be true. Like if he's just working by himself for most of the time or collaborating with people, it's like all those tapes have songs on it. That's a huge amount of music. And in the abstract, it's amazing. But then thinking about a person recording that many songs and spending that much time in the studio it makes me a little sad it's sad but it's also infuriating i mean so um <laughs> I, I love prince i said at the top of the 
show. I wasn't kidding. He's my favorite sort of musical artist. There's bands that I like better than Prince, but in terms of like an individual artist, I like Prince. But it really, it's infuriating that he just, he just had no filter or he had no governor. And so you could just produce hours and hours and hours of garbage. And it's depressing to know there's that much bad Prince out there and that it may see the light of day someday. I mean, the, the th- I don't want to see the three different concept records he wrote for Jupiter Ascending. I don't, I don't want to hear that. Don't take that out of the ball. Burn it. I mean, like, the the fact that from his first record till Sign of the Times was just an incredible streak. And then there's maybe two to four records that are good other than that. I don't know, I think that's a stretch. I mean, I know Come is a great record. I think Hit and Run Part 2 is a great record. I don't know. Maybe Diamonds and Pearls was an okay record. Through and through, I don't think it was a good record. I think it was hit or miss. But just, you know, the quality of the production is probably all over the place. The quality of the songs is probably all over the place. When you write that much and produce that much, at some point, the quality's got to dip. You got to know what's a good song and what's a bad song. I think that's putting too much power in the hands of the artist, in a way. I mean, I think he was very talented, a genius, whatever you want to call it. But the reason why the songs he wrote were hits were not because he knew what hits were. It's that what he was writing synchronized with the culture. And then when the culture moved on, that synchronization stopped, right? And then that then what happens is if if you're a hit writer, right, and your whole persona is that is you you are someone who writes hit songs, then you might think you know what makes a hit song, but I don't think you do. He did think so, because I read that in the book about yeah. Purple Rain. He's like, writing hits is easy. These people will eat up. Any, anything yeah. I put out there, they'll eat it up. Which is true, but it was not because he... It was because he was in sync, perfectly in sync, and then was able to steer people's taste somewhat. But that's one giant ocean liner and a little tiny boat in sync, and then maybe... All of a sudden, the ocean liner thinks that this boat can show them the way through the uh, the field of icebergs or whatever, right? But then at some point, that little tiny boat makes a wrong turn, and then the big giant ocean liner goes goes somewhere else, right? That's the problem, I think, is that is is to believe that you you completely know what makes a hit song or what makes something resonate. At least some of it is chance or you know syn- synchronicity sync you know syncing with with the culture sync right? synchronicity s-i-n-k yeah chronicity yeah. yeah that little boat you know eventually puts out a soundtrack to the video game jupiter ascending <laughs> therein lies the fate of the little boat <laughs> <laughs> judge jim you've heard a lot of arguments today we haven't let you talk much the jim lovers who listen to this podcast are gonna be pissed they're gonna be like where was the jim well, yeah, I, I apologize for, you know, not not getting into Prince for the past 40 years. But I do, yeah, I, I always liked him, though. You know, I just, I did, I don't want it to sound like I didn't like Prince. I, I But I definitely was just a singles. I just caught the singles, you know. I never dug deep. And, uh, but so, okay, like, I guess I have to be impartial. I'm just, I'm just looking at here on the Metacritic scores. And it says, sign the times. It, your Honor, Your Honor, before, Excuse me. before you make <laughs> yes, your decision, yes. may I approach the bench? You may. One thing I would like to say is you have to be impartial, but you also have to remember who are you going to spend the next 30 Thanksgivings with. <laughs> yeah, think about that. We, we make some great turkey here. 
at the at, at our household, Jim. If you want to spend the next three Thanksgivings with us, you are always welcome. If that's if that's what my uh, counterpart's argument is. I'm sorry to have interrupted, Your Honor. <laughs> I'm just going to go here, okay, by the Metacritic scores on the Wikipedia pages. <laughs> it says, Sign of the Times, 99 out of 100, 1999, 100 out of 100. So oh! I have to go with 1999. Wow. Metacritic. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. Because, yeah, because I was looking around and it was just like, oh, Sign of the Times is the best album ever. I just had to go by the numbers. There are no good losses. You know, there's no... <laughs> There's no, they talk about, uh, what do they call it? Uh, a good defeat, a good loss. You know, I, I feel like I fought hard, Yeah, but oh, I'll, yeah. I'll take, I'll take it. You know, I don't think we're saying either album's bad. Maybe Rick is saying Sound of Times is a bad record, but I, I'm saying they're both good records. I feel like Sign of the Times is the comet in, in that that's individual song. It almost burned Prince for the rest of the time i i do feel like sign of the times is is his is peak prince now 1999 is an album i think it's i i do feel like it's peak prince album and then to go back to the uh not metacritic but like at least rotten tomatoes you know on the movie front uh just recently uh citizen kane went from 100 percent fresh on rotten tomatoes to 99 percent, and so that means that paddington 2 <laughs> is now a better movie according to rotten tomatoes i, I need to see that movie people love that movie <laughs> Paddington too. Yes, uh, I've seen I've seen Citizen Kane. It's it's a you know it's a ninety nine. So apparently, someone added a nineteen thirties review of Citizen Kane to uh, Rotten Tomatoes, and that's what pulled it down. <laughs> nice. Sign of the yeah. Times eighty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and then uh, Purple Rain. Let's see. Not Purple Rain. Well, I know nineteen ninety nine, but there's no nineteen ninety nine movie. Oh, oh, you're talking about movies. Seventy oh, yeah. percent. Purple Rain. Hmm. Sign of the Times, better reviewed film. Apples and oranges, I would say. Yeah, one concert, concert, concert film, film versus narrative. Well, I think that's all we've got for today, folks. And we're almost out of time as per our free streaming service. <laughs> <laughs> Any closing thoughts? We've ruled. I'm go listen to uh, Housequake again. That's, that's <laughs> I do like that Housequake. Stood out. I, I know. Speaking as someone who never listened to the, this whole album before. So that and... Uh, what is it? Lady Cab Driver. Listen to the... I'm going to go listen to that again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to all of them again. The whole thing. Uh, both of them, of course. And try listen to some of his other records, too, of course. I'm going to go back. And yeah, go back. They're great. Do my... Yeah, get, get with the program here. I'm a little late, but... <laughs> so I have to admit, yeah, and what you were saying, Jim, about Sign of the Times and the production is, is as far as using, like, 1987-era digital synth... Right, so that transition from analog sense to digital sense. Uh -huh. I mean, Prince, out of everybody, I think did the best job making digital sense not sound like complete crap. I mean, the like on Housequake, that fudgy, that weird kind of sound. I mean, it's it's obviously, I think to I think it's a digital synth, right? Well, yeah, but it's good, and so whereas so much DX7 and the Roland digital synth stuff that's from that era is just so bad. Yeah. It's so hard to listen to. Well, you're also talking about a person who played a knockoff Telecaster, was an offender, through I think it was like either a Gorilla or a Crate amp. I couldn't, like I forgot what amp. It was like a terrible amp brand and then played all stock boss pedals. I think there's yeah. a kind of musician, like we have a friend, Matt, 
who's a musician, one of the mats, the guy who helped me install that tape player in my mom's 77 Monte Carlo, he can pick up any instrument. It doesn't matter if it's garbage or if it's a, like a masterful instrument and he can play it and it sounds beautiful. I think Prince had the same knack to be able to take. In fact, the mat I'm talking about had like a KX88 with a, a TX802 which was this all digital keyboard thing with ridiculous sounds on it. And he could make great music out of it, just understanding the ridiculousness of those sounds and sort of mastering them similar to what Prince did. So Prince had that knack of taking any piece of gear and making it sound good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good night, fellas. Yeah. It's good to see you. Yeah. Good to see you. Too bad we had to make it an argument. I don't feel like it was that much of an argument. I'm sorry. I, I, I felt like I was not as uh, intense <laughs> in arguing my, my side of it as I, I no. could have been or on top of it. You won. <laughs> I did. I did. I guess this is the story of my life, right? I, I'm not happy with winning. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's just, like, what's the point? Like, if I don't get any joy from this, it's like, oh, why am I bothering? Geez, I'm sorry if the last two hours weren't joyful for you, Rick. They were joyful for me. No, they Would were. you like to change your verdict? They were. No, I, no I, 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 experienced, I experienced joy during it happening. Yeah, I guess that's the problem is, is I, I need to not think of it as a negative. I'm just not, my whole life is not built around winning and losing. Well, you'll never make it in this world, Rick. <laughs> I know, I know, but, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. No. So I shouldn't feel bad that I'm not more joyous and like in your face about winning. <laughs> but I, I mean, honestly, though, it was, I mean, it was obvious <laughs> to me that I was right. So where's the joy? Where's the, where's the joy in, you know, having, you know, a confirmation of everything you believe? Look, as Prince will tell you, there is no joy, man. We're all going to die. Nobody wins. We all lose. <laughs> Sky's all purple. <laughs> People, People running everywhere. Running everywhere. <laughs> yeah. We could all die any day. I do. I do love it. We could all die any day. He like repeats that as like a you're like a woo. Get all die any day. I was like, what a great. Yeah. yeah, come on, everybody. We could all die any day. Get up. What a way to bring him up. <laughs> Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.